Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. I consider you, and this is not to make you uncomfortable, but the absolute truth, as one of the preeminent nutritionists because you, you're academician, you know the academics, and as important, if not more, you're one of the people that has, have really applied it to the community. How many other people out there on the social media landscape of millions of followers do we know that have done both? I can count in my, not even, I can't even say in one hand because it's less than that, <laughs> that have done both the academic yeah. and the clinical and the community component. And we'll talk about all that. And that matters to us because when we hear little fights over minuscule stuff because they read some, some doctor read some paper and they don't know how to apply it to communities that to truly make a difference. It, to be honest, it raises my blood pressure. I don't have salt to raise my blood pressure, but, <laughs> but that raises my blood pressure because it seems so myopic and so distilled out of reality. Mm. So we start with that. Uh, well, I, I just want to say thank you so much. Those words mean an awful lot coming from you. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're the top. You are the top. I, I, no I, I swear. That. I mean, I'll tell you a couple of people. Uh, Dr. Katz is somebody we really, really admire. And he says uncomfortable things that makes the plant-based world uncomfortable and the non-plant-based world. And he says, I'm a plant-based person for environment, life, all of that stuff. But here's the science. And that's why he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't have millions of followers. And you're up there. And, and that matters. That person that has done both elements and all three elements matter. And on top of that, the personality. We oh. met Brenda in, 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 in our trips. We went on a trip to Israel, Turkey, Greece. And then we met you in Saudi Arabia when, yeah. when uh, Prince Khalid had invited us. And what we came out of that was like, oh my God, there are three-dimensional people. You're like a four-dimensional person. And we'll tell some of those stories that you told us. <laughs> it yeah. was like being on an adult summer camp with yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. so much fun. It was. It was. <laughs> It was maybe the most memorable conference trip of my life. And yes. I cherish the memories so much. Same. It, it, it was amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, and even Sophie, and our, we usually take our kids to these things, as, as you know. And, and Sophie came out of that saying, oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, she she absolutely loved you. Yeah. And, and uh, so um, you have influenced her already. <laughs> oh, well, your kids are the most amazing kids I've ever come across. So no, no, I, no. I, I, I was just um, enjoying so much getting to know them. Very oh, they special. Love they love you. They absolutely love they you. They truly love you. you too. We, well, you're getting a lot of love <laughs> and we're so grateful to you being here. On the Brain Health Revolution platform, the book of the month is Nourish, your, that you co-authored with Dr. Rishma I would Rishma say book Shah. of the year. I, it I really, should be the book of the year, I, right? I, I think people know me. I don't over, hyperbole is not my thing. That's how I how much I think of this book. So this oh, book, well, thank you. And Nourish was published in uh, 2020. Am I right? It was published yes. in 2020. Yeah, November of 2020. Right. A out. very difficult year for publications to come out and uh, for any promotion of, of publications, but it did so well because of the incredible content. So Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Nutrition Guide for Families, and the foreword was by Dr. David Katz, and oh. it is just a gem of a book to have. Well, not only just the recipes, that. but the way it was written, the way that it guides not just a 
a person, but an entire family to live a healthy life and how to, um, you know, get introduced to a plant-based diet. So I really, really appreciate the circumspect nature of this book and understanding that a lot, a lot of individuals may have difficulty moving towards that direction. So thank you for this gift. Well, thank you for saying that. It was definitely a labor of love. And I, I can remember when Reshma and I decided to do it. I, she was wanting to do something in the plant-based world that would make a difference. And I said, well, what we really need is a book uh, for families. We really don't have a comprehensive guide for families. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do it if you'll do it with me. <laughs> so I said, you're on. I'm, I'd be very happy to do that. And, and, you know, you never know when you partner with someone that you don't know that well. But I couldn't have asked for a more wonderful yeah. person to work with. I so enjoyed uh, working <clears throat> with Reshma. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, she's an amazing person. She is. And we're happy to call her our friend. She's, she's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely. The nutrition component of this is, I mean, uh, as 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 accurate as possible. Now, let me tell you a little bit of a side story. So when we wrote our book, we sent you a copy, and and we wanted some, uh, you know, your your blessings. And uh, I love the fact that you sent with, with the way that uh, you know you 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 emailed us back saying, "Can you possibly look at this section? I think you might have overstated this and understated that." And 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 I love that courage. I love that courageous conversations. One of my favorite books is about uh, courageous conversation. And we really truly respected you so much that immediately we jumped. The whole team jumped on it and made the necessary uh -uh. changes. And uh, we 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 appreciate your 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 candor and 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 truthfulness for science, you yeah. know, st standing for science. Well, thank you so much for that. It was my great honor to be able to review it. It is such a beautiful book. It's beautiful in every sense of the word. And uh, it was just uh, so brilliantly written. Um, very thank you so much. Thank you, Brenda. It, if you don't mind, I want to start with her background. Sure, uh, so absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I, that people would love that. I, before we get to the juicy stories of uh, you taking care of the bullies and all of that stuff <laughs> in high school, you want to give us your own little bit background of uh, how you uh, embarked on this journey? Yeah, so I've, you know, I've been a dietitian for almost 40 years. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I was passionate about nutrition from the time I was in high school. I just thought it was so interesting that what we eat could so profoundly affect our health and our risk of disease and all of that. And I thought to myself, you know, there's, to me, um, when you feel passionate about something, it's a really big hint to what you should be doing with your life. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted, I always knew I wanted to live a very meaningful life. And I thought I need to follow that passion. And so I, you know, I, I studied nutrition, but when I started studying nutrition, I was not plant-based, but I was interested in plant-based. It was almost something that was, um, it was a little bit magical for me because I, I had never really met real live vegetarians and it was something that seemed like a, you know, a pipe dream almost, but I loved the idea of it. And, and I remember in university, whenever there was an opportunity to write about vegetarian diets, I would take that on. And, and 
it wasn't until about 32 years ago that I actually went plant-based. But what I found was from, you know, even in university, I was, I was making tofu and lentils. I was, I was playing with plant-based foods and finding that as I, I sort of introduced them into my diet, I was eating fewer of the animal products. And so I was making a gradual shift towards a plant-based diet. And then about uh, 32 years ago, um, I, it, this was 1989, uh, I, I had an incident that just kind of pushed me over the edge. And the incident was probably something that you would least expect would, <laughs> would, would, you know, end up uh, with, you know, uh, impacting that kind of change in, in a person's life. But it was just my friend called up on his way deer hunting to see if he could, you know, stop by for a coffee. And I said, oh, sure. Um, and, and as he was driving over, I'm thinking about what I could say to him to stop him from killing another deer. And, and you know, I, I, I said all the usual things, you know, that it just, it, I just couldn't understand why he would want to kill such a beautiful, innocent creature who just wanted to live. I, I, it seemed not fair. It wasn't a sport. It was, it was, you know, in a sport, both people, both teams have the same equipment. He, you know, he's got this big gun. The deer has no defense against his ball. I went on and on and, and it was his response that actually changed the course of my life. He, he said to me, you know, just because you don't have the guts to pull the trigger does not mean you are not responsible for the trigger being pulled every time you buy your piece of meat camouflaged in cellophane in a grocery store. He said, at least the deer that I'm going to eat has had a life. I really doubt you can say the same for the meat that's sitting on your plate. And I was silenced. I just, I knew he was absolutely right. And I, I made a, you know, vow to myself at that moment that I would begin to take responsibility for the food that I was eating. And as soon as, you know, that week I, I started ordering uh, journal articles from animal agriculture magazines and just reading as much as I could about all of this. You know, I lived in Northern Ontario. This is hunting and fishing territory, but within about a week, I mean, the blinders just came off and I just couldn't justify eating animals anymore. I just, I didn't feel right about it. I felt like it was you know, contributing to a system of cruelty that was really quite unjustifiable. And so I thought, you know, I here I was, I was a public health nutritionist. As a public health nutritionist, all of my nutrition education materials were built around Canada's food guide, being from Canada. And, you know, half of which, you know, there were there are four food groups. Half, there were four food groups, half of which were animal products. And I thought to myself, you know, how could I continue to be a dietitian and be completely plant-based? And, and of course, I had two small children at the time. They were four and one. My husband uh, grew up in Northern Ontario hunting and fishing. And, and I can remember approaching him and saying, you know, I would really like to be a vegetarian. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to do that with me. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, 
I thought you'd never ask. I would love to be a vegetarian. He said, you know, what I've always wanted in my life is to leave a softer footprint on the planet. And I really can't think of a better way of doing that. And, and it was just this huge relief. Uh, You know, I, I just couldn't believe the words that were coming out of his mouth. I was so grateful. And I can tell you, our parents did not put on their party hats when we told them that we were going vegetarian, it, they, it was scary. I mean, we didn't know other vegetarians. I didn't know if I could even continue in my profession. Um, but I thought about it a lot. And I thought, you know, if I, I'm seeing this bigger picture about the environment and the animals and, 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 and our risk of chronic disease. And if I don't have the courage to stay within my profession and try to affect some change, who will, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I just, I just thought I, I, I need to have the courage to stand for what I believe in. And so I just, um, you know, I remember thinking I, I need to be respectful. I need to be professional and I need to know my stuff. Mm. And, uh, and then I moved forward um, uh, bearing all of those in mind. And, and, you know, I was, I was really surprised by the response of my peers in general. It was not what I expected it to be. Generally, um, people were happy to have someone who could provide information that would help them with their plant-based clients, for example. So it ended up um, being a little easier than I thought it would be. That's amazing. Incredible. Yeah, we we have had a similar kind of power, well, a little bit like that. Um, I think um, we we uh, started as a plant based initially about seventeen years ago. Yeah, so a vegetarian. Well, yeah, a little over eighteen years now. <clears throat> eighteen years yeah. ago, <laughs> for a combina- combination of reasons. My father had a heart attack at age forty. Your father passed in your hands. Yeah, um, my father uh, from, passed away from cardiovascular disease, a heart attack in her yeah. hands. Well, um, oh. so it was a, a terrible you know, legacy of uh, disease, vascular disease in our, both our families, and then two grandparents who had Alzheimer's and, and, and we were so disillusioned by the uh, research, the way it was in, at NIH. I worked two years at NIH and same clinical models that, that just fed the next grant mm-hmm. and not nothing towards the research uh, to, through towards true research. And then at UCSD. And so we decided we have to find a path for lifestyle and the closest thing was Loma Linda. And then that actually got us in that direction quite a bit. And, oh. and the science just fit, I mean, perfectly. And that was bewildering. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was so wonderful to see all the research. Suddenly, this whole new world just opened <laughs> up. Things that were never taught to us in medical school, things that were not very in <laughs> you know, papers and research that, that were there for decades and nobody really bothered reading them because they were different. They didn't align with guidelines. They didn't align with what was taught by the majority. Um, and, and so we were thrilled. You know, whenever you say 32 years, I'm, I, I'm taken aback because, I mean, yeah. you don't look a day older than 30, maybe. Oh, no. Well, I'm 62. Oh, you're I'm so 62. beautiful and so grandma. It probably, it definitely is a plant-based diet, of course. But and, um, and my husband and I have been married 43 years now. 
amazing. Wow. That's amazing. incredible. Amazing. That is incredible. Uh, uh, speaking of that, I mean, as far as plant-based living and, 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 or anytime you take on a different path, this, it, it's quite difficult. It really um, is, I mean, we yeah. spoke with Dr. Clapper when he said that he used to speak about lifestyle and uh, plant-based and there would be six people in a basement yeah. where he's talking to them. And that even, was the conference, even prevention, prevention, <laughs> forget about plant-based, just prevention was, would be 10 people coming and talking, right. listening to prevention. Definitely. The world is different and we're changing and we're learning and we're adapting and the, this whole preventive world, which has opened up massively. And you're one of the founders, one of the you know leading thinkers. You definitely. Are. How now looking at in retrospect, do you feel that it was difficult for you or no, you were in the thralls of it. And you, so you didn't, you didn't experience the, the challenges or you didn't. Oh no, it was difficult. There were definitely times where it was difficult. I can remember uh, when we wrote the first book, it was called Becoming Vegetarian. Uh, this was, you know, we were writing between 1992 and 1994 and the book was released in 94. And I wrote it with two uh, colleagues, Fasanto Molina and, and Victoria Harrison. Yeah. And, and it was probably one of the very first books on vegetarian nutrition by dietitians. It definitely was the first in our country. And it was actually a vegan book in disguise, really. We had a chapter called Without Meat, and then we had another chapter called Without Dairy. So how do you meet your nutritional requirements without meat? So all about protein and iron and zinc. And then how do you meet your requirements without, without dairy? So all about calcium and, and vitamin D and so forth. And so uh, what happened was, was the, you know, the dietitians who were working for the Dairy Bureau, Bureau of Canada were anticipating that this becoming vegetarian book would be promoting dairy products. Mm. And when they got the book and saw that it was not only not promoting dairy products, it was telling people how, could, how they could survive without dairy products, uh, they were mortified. They were actually outraged. And they, they wrote a 45-page rebuttal to our book, made it free of charge to every health professional in the country, wow. and took out a full-page ad in our professional journal uh, to call us irresponsible. And how could dietitians say such outrageous things? And so it was a full-on attack. And so it was not always easy. And, you know, at first I was just mortified to see a whole page ad in our professional journal mm -hmm. calling me irresponsible. It was mortifying. But what I realized is that there is no way they would have spent the thousands of dollars they spent if we were not a real threat to the bottom yeah. line. <laughs> so they were taking us seriously. And uh, so I, it was it was quite interesting to, to see the response. But generally, um, you know, we definitely had our, you know, times where where our our professional uh, colleagues were not thrilled with what we were saying. But generally, um, they were quite respectful. And I can remember doing, you know, national nutrition conference talks all over the world, really. And dietitians were really appreciative. I can remember in the year 2000, I think it was, I did a lecture for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. 
And the room that I was in held 900 people. And there were at least two or 300 on the floor. There were a couple hundred outside the back door trying to listen in. And it was the second biggest selling tape of the conference, uh, second only to the keynote address for the Mm -hmm. whole thing. And uh, so it was just so shocking how interested my colleagues were to learn more about plant-based nutrition um, even back then. So it was, we've had, and my my writing partner, Vasanto, actually received the highest award of Dietitians of Canada, the Riley Jeffs Memorial Lecture Award a couple of years ago. And so it's really come full circle. And, and we are, I think, now really appreciated. I, I did a lecture for Dietitians of Canada and one of the leaders of Dietitians of Canada uh, came to me afterwards and said, you make me so proud to be a dietitian. Mm. Thank you for the work that you've done. Oh. And so it's, you know, we feel that all of our efforts were well worth it. So That's amazing, of course. Oh my gosh. You, you, you set the platform, this, this, uh, the, the steps for everybody else to follow. True. Um, Which is always the most difficult one, the is, first one, because is. you'll have to, you have to face all the, the resistance um, and, and changing the status quo comes with a lot of resistance initially. Yes. And I think it's important to, you know, when you're doing that, to me, the most important things are to, to be very knowledgeable, but to be very respectful because yeah. we're all at where we're at for a reason. And, and, and so we want to, uh, you know, I, I always thought that there's no dietitian that I can't learn something from. Mm-hmm. And, and so we just, it's a sharing of experiences and a sharing of knowledge, it, you know, in a way that feels like I'm valuing that other person. And I am. Uh, and so I think that's one of the most important things that you can do when you're trying to forge new ground and, and, um, and, and, you know, we don't ever make friends by spitting in one's, uh, you know, someone's face. We need to connect with people and, and really be respectful to them. And, and that's, sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah. beautiful words. I, I, I hope, I hope that uh, people in the realm of nutritional nowadays can learn something from you because nutrition has become such an aggressive wow. and um, a hateful conversation. And um, yeah, it's, it's very sad to see that. Yeah, I mean, the, the point is speaking the truth, but also adapting to the population to make sure that we can help empower people. And if it's anything short of that, we're, we're actually um, letting our own egos dictate path. <clears throat> we, our, our, our entire life, our, our academic life and other has been, how can we get large populations to become healthier? Mm. That's it. Yeah. I mean, and, and in doing so, of course, doing better for the planet and everything else, all of that into consideration. But if you don't take the population into consideration, you're preaching, you're yelling, you're, I mean, not verbally, but, but metaphorically, you're yelling at people in a judgment without actually knowing human behavior. Human behavior does not change that way. So we That's love your true. approach. Yes, I love it. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, it breaks my heart to see the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the I, can, I can understand the, the uh, disagreements um, between, say, the keto people and the plant-based people. But what really breaks my heart 
is the the sort of hatred within our own community. And I don't have a lot of tolerance for that. I think we need to be very appreciative of one another. Mm -hmm. And what we've attempted and have accomplished in our own ways. And so I think it's really important to just be really respectful of of the, you know, the pioneers and the people that are doing new things now and just say, we can agree to disagree on the little things that the main thing is that we're seeing the need for the world to go plant-based and whether it's, a you know, a little bit higher fat or lower fat or whatever, you know, the differences we have are, they're not worth fighting about. We just end up sending all our energy into a black hole when we do that. Yeah. We need to really be uh, holding one another's hands and lifting one another up to be as strong as we can um, as a community. I think it's so important. Um, we've had we've lost people because we said a small amount of olive oil uh, and, and, and under these circumstances where weight, cardiovascular, it might be okay, given that we are actually dealing in, in, in our free clinics with people and 40 years of age having strokes and 99% of their food is unhealthy. I mean, literally from fast food to fast food. And, and for me to introduce stepwise, you know, uh, transition was sticking to the science, definitely, but providing uh, it's, uh, so I agree. I definitely agree with you on that. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you on that as well. And when you look at, for example, the people of the blue zones, yeah. Um, there aren't any of the blue zones that don't use a little bit of oil. And I think generally when we think about the use of concentrated sugars and concentrated oils, you know, if we're really to design an optimal diet, we'll want to minimize those because we get so much more nutritionally from the foods they come from. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you get more from nuts and seeds and avocados and so forth than you will from their oils. You get the fiber and more of the, you know, the antioxidants and phytochemicals and so on and so on and so on. Um, and, and so, of course, those are really wonderful choices. But in the context of an entire diet and, and it helping people transition, I think we also need to, um, be really practical and reasonable yeah. and uh, and recognize that there are many people on this planet who are extremely healthy, who do include some of these products. And, and the thing <clears throat> is, is that, you know, eating is not, it, it's also about pleasure and joyfulness and sharing food with your family and all of those things. And sometimes if you use a little bit of, you know, a sweetener or a little bit of an oil that boosts flavor and enhances enjoyment, then people will be more willing to make some shift. And so I completely agree with you. It's a step at a time. And if they're moving in the right direction. That's worth celebrating. Yeah, we are, we in this forum right now. We have some coaches. We're doing some research, nationwide research, in churches and faith-based communities, and we have coaches that we are training. And these coaches will go back and train fifty other people. And if I go to these different communities and say, you know, no salt, no oil, no meat, no cheese, no, no, no this, no that. And there'll be no shares. I know, you know, Brenda, <laughs> we have to adapt. We have to change. Even the cooking has to adapt to make sure that the taste culture, all of that is taken into consideration. 
we can't be lazy right. just because we we want people to fit our you know, that i mean i think that i heard somewhere that the problem in the world is that the battle between simplicity or people who say uh, it's all about uh, common sense and people say no life is complex and we have to adapt understand and adapt to the complexity and then only then we will actually welcome all the variety of human experience mm -hmm. that's it so that's we we love that with that i i don't know if i uh, we want to go into the, your your high school endeavors or marshall island either one i think they, yeah, they're I'm both the same it's your no holds bar meeting challenge fearless approach comes from those stories of high school at, which actually then took you to these islands where nobody else would have taken on these challenges and you know you didn't just take it on you created a paradigm shift for nutrition so i'll let you take it wherever you want Okay. Well, the stories, it's so funny, you know, getting to the high school stories. It wasn't even just high school. I can remember my first, I, I was, was always pretty physically strong as a kid. And, and I can remember my very first fight, my brother was the sweetest person you've ever met. And he was always like won the citizenship award for the school. My dad would always be embarrassed when he'd win the most gentlemanly player in hockey. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? It's like so counterintuitive, most gentle me player in hockey. I mean, that's funny. And so he was always, he was always like the sweet guy. And yeah. I remember he was in grade two, I was in grade one, and the bully of the school was in grade three and beat my brother up. And, and I was just so angry that he would beat my brother up and my brother, who was like the sweetest person. And so I went up to him. I was in grade one. He was in grade three. And I said, I'll meet you after school. This is the day after this. <laughs> so, of course, the word traveled around the school like wildfire. And after school, my brother ran all the way home to tell my mom and dad that I was getting in a fight with the bully. And my dad was running to school and he said as he got close to the school he sees this guy laying on the ground and me just kicking the heck out of him and, and and he just turned around walked home and he walked in the house he said don't he said i think there's one we don't have to worry about <laughs> that was my first fight on my brother's behalf yeah. Yeah. and then the second the, the 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 second funny one was great this is grade four. I won't tell them all because there's there are several. This is grade four. First day of school, this kid in grade five comes up to me. Here I am in my little pink dress, my little ponytails. You know, I'm like 10 years old and grade four. And he comes up to me and he just pushes me into the dirt, like on purpose for no reason. So, of course, I beat him up. <laughs> And, 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 and he's in the principal's office. I get called to the principal's office and I'm terrified. I'd never had to go to a principal's office before. And I walk into the principal's office and, and the principal looks at him and he's got a bleeding nose and his shirt's torn and he's crying. And, and then she looks at me and I'm this little sweet little thing with pigtails and the pink dress. <laughs> she looks at him, she looks at me and then she looks at him and she says, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> that sweet little girl did that to you. She said, I'm so sorry, dear. You can go back to your classroom. <laughs> I, had, I had a few, I had a few, 
a few incidences. Uh, I mean, and and it goes on and on up into my high school years. But I always, I always stuck up for, for myself if I was being beat up. Put it that way. <laughs> That's it, lovely. It, it is. I mean, that, so one of the, sorry, not to take a beautiful story and then tear it up neurologically, but, you know, leadership is ability to have a higher threshold of anxiety with new situations, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because to think about it, to put yourself in anxiety provoking situations is what leadership is about. I mean, right. new, new, new venture, new idea, new, you know, a fight for God's sake. I, mean, I wouldn't know. <laughs> so that personality that would take on things that are not popular, that are th taking on things that are difficult, that actually has taken you throughout life. And we see that in, in your book and your conversations. And, and, and I mean, there's gentility and love into it. That that's wisdom. But the areas you've, I, I promise you, this is not fulsome flattery. I'm not trying to, I'm not that kind of a person, uh, but that component of personality just takes you throughout your life, has taken you throughout life, including Marshall Islands, which is the story is, I mean, that's a legendary project. It really is. It, I mean, so there's, there are these big projects like the Adventist Health Study, but there are hundreds of people behind it and millions of dollars at NIH and stuff. You're, I would love for them, for you to tell the audience about the Marshall Island project and, and what you did there, which is, I think is remarkable. Well, I, I wrote a book in 2003 called Defeating Diabetes. And, and the Marshall Islands, for those, of the, for those of the audience that have never heard of the Marshall Islands, they're about 2,300 miles southwest of Hawaii. And they're very, very remote. They were used as atomic bomb testing grounds because they're so remote after the Second World War. And, and it's a population of about 60,000 people, about half of whom live in the island on the island that we worked on, and that's Majuro. And, and they have some of the highest rates of diabetes on the planet. About It's, it's usually somewhere around 37% of the adults uh, have type 2 diabetes and, and probably 80% or more with either prediabetes or diabetes. And of course, 80 years ago, there wasn't any diabetes. It was unheard of. People were physically active. They lived off the land. They ate fish and plants and, and you know, a lot of coconut and, and, you know, meat occasionally. They didn't have a lot of access to meat. And today, people live on uh, processed foods. They're, you know, the little island of Majuro is 3.7 mile, square miles in area, and there are 30,000 people there. And, and so you can't grow a lot of food. That island might support 500 people, certainly not 30,000. And, and so they have to import food and they don't have a lot of money. So, so the foods they import are, you know, ramen noodles and white rice and spam and uh, the, their drink is luau and it's, you know, high fructose corn syrup beverage. And the children's favorite snack is ramen noodles dry in the package with Kool-Aid powder sprinkled on top. It's, it's really quite a, a unbelievable. You couldn't really design a diet to induce diabetes any better than the diet uh, these, these poor individuals have adopted. And the Marshall Islands is, the people are just so much fun. They're, they laugh and sing and there's no embarrassment. You can walk down the street singing and everybody will just join in. I mean, it's just such a joyful, <clears throat> unique community. And I just 
I loved the people there. But anyway, I the, there was a group called Canvas Back Missions, a Seventh-day Adventist mission group that had been providing medical teams to help the Marshallese for years. So, you know, ENT docs and cancer docs and so on, they bring in teams to help the Marshallese. And they kind of watched the diabetes epidemic unfold and decided they needed to try to do something. So they got a grant from the US Department of Defense to do research there. And, and they called me to see if I'd be willing to help them, you know, design and implement a program that could be used in the research. So I did. And my husband and my son actually came with me. My daughter was already in university, but this is 2006. And, and I can remember going in, we didn't have even a place to conduct our research. So, but we were eventually given uh, the TB and leprosy clinic. And, and they had, you know, stainless steel medical cabinets that had two inches of rat droppings uh, lining them. The bathrooms looked like they hadn't been cleaned in two years. And I, we had nine men and me uh, doing the build out, trying to build this, you know, this diabetes wellness center. And I had to feed the nine men and myself and do most of the cleaning while they were building. So all of this, I mean, the walls, the, the everything, and then the rebuilding and ordering everything we needed, creating the um, all of the PowerPoint presentations, all of the menus, all of the recipes, hiring staff, training staff. The, the staff didn't know the difference between a tablespoon and a teaspoon, or they'd never used any of that. And so it was a real challenge. Um, we were working literally 16 hours a day. I remember flying, I had to fly to New York to give a lecture that I had already been committed to before, you know, starting this project. And, and, and it was with Andrew Weil and his, his conference and then flying back and the difference between the Marshall Islands and downtown New York and then flying back and I arrived after traveling for how many hours and and I, I it was um, Saturday that I arrived and I thought, well, maybe I can just, you know, get to bed early and get a good rest. And and as I stepped off the plane, you know, it was like the food's arrived. We it's starting to go bad. We don't know what to do with it. How You know, and it was just I worked until midnight the night that I arrived. Oh. Uh, and that was life there. It was really, really intense. Wow. But it was so rewarding. We had five overlapping cohorts where we had, you know, our, our intervention group and a control group. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, five times. And so the control group wanted to be the intervention group. So we had a hard time keeping them doing what they, you know, normally yes. would do. they wanted to pretend they were in the intervention. But anyway, the intervention was essentially, you know, they were with us four days a week. We gave them food for seven days a week and we would do this for about a month. And then they would go on to, you know, twice a week and then once a week and so on with us. But when they were with us, they were with us seven or eight hours a day. And so we we did, you know, exercise, cooking classes, um, new, you know, education classes, you name it. And what we saw is within two weeks, their blood glucose dropped on average about 75 points. Mm -hmm. uh, and within the three months, their, their A1Cs were down about two points. Uh, and, and we saw people completely reverse their diabetes in some cases. And people were shocked because 
it, they said one of the things we heard over and over again was the brain fog lifted. Yes. That was, they just said, I can think clearly for the first time in years, the pain in their, you know, joints and it just disappeared and they could walk. And, and, and when people came into the program, nobody believed that it would work. They, they, they thought that diabetes was just the luck of the draw, that it had nothing to do with food and exercise. They, they, nobody exercised. They wouldn't walk because if you were walking, that meant you couldn't afford 25 cents for a taxi. And it was a embarrassment to them. And, and so by the time we left, uh, there were walkathons and there were, you know, wow. they were healthy menus in the restaurants because they actually saw with their own eyes what it could do. And, uh, and, and we continued to go back even after the research and, and um, we did uh, all sorts of work with, uh, you know, with the schools. Uh, the last time I went in 2017, we actually created nutrition education curriculums for all the public schools in the, in the area and, or on the island. And so we just continued to, to do interventions, to work with the community. And, and uh, it's been a, a really remarkable experience. And actually in 2019, our first um, uh, journal article came out and we now have a team working on the two results papers, which should be out in the next year. Oh. So they were delayed uh, for, for many reasons, but probably the biggest reason was we were concerned about the quality of our data because the hospital um, uh, lost a lot of the blood work. So it was tricky for many reasons. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. absolutely. I've, I've heard this story so many times and every time I hear it, I get inspired yeah. um, by not just the power of food, but how you know the results change a community when they actually see the difference and this in this inspiration and this yeah. motivation continue. So kudos to you and the team for doing such an amazing job. One of the Thank things that so we, uh, there's a video that we wa we've watched over and over again by uh, Dr. Pinkard from Harvard. It's that once reason establishes itself around the topic, no matter what happens, that's already now in the uh, you know atmosphere. It's in the ether sphere, and and uh, yeah, wars come, conflicts come, people can confound it, but nope, truth has manifested. Now it's it's done. That crack in the fabric of time and space has been laid down. Who does that? Ironically, it's not some revolutions. It's the one thinker or a few thinkers that bring up a thought and they lay it down. And when they lay it down, it's so quiet that nobody sees the shattering effect, the crystallization effect that that one person has had in history. It's always these loud, obnoxious, nope, <laughs> the quiet person that did the due diligence and created that reality, that truth, manifested it, has changed the whole landscape of history. Again, I'm not giving you false and flattery. I, I, I'm not scared of you beating me up. I, so far, <laughs> I never beat you up. You're in Canada. I'm here. I'm fine. <laughs> I swear to you. So it's it's the fact that people like you, and hopefully we will do. We've done it, and we will do it as well. Once you create that path of truth that's been laid down with data, that's it. That crack in history, that 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 chasm, that reality has been manifested, and that's what matters. All the social media bombast 
is nothing compared to that truth. There's a video of Dr. Pinkert I'll share with you and, and the audience as well. I love that. It's, it's absolutely lovely. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that changed our life. It, it, sure it gives you yes. hopes like, you know, whenever you're in the middle of the battle, always somebody attacking you and somebody and all these opportunities go away because you're not adapting your language to say, oh, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of meat, a little bit or no, nothing at all or this. You're doing what's right. You lose opportunities. So you become dis disheartened. But then you realize that history is long mm -hmm. and what you do in that history matters. So thank you so much for that. So the Marshall Island project. It to us matters a tremendous amount, and, and we're looking forward to the data. Absolutely. So I think I think this is a good time to pivot to talk about diet. I mean, you during your work and your lifetime have seen incredible changes happen to the human body and disease reverse with a plant-based diet, and and you've seen it over and over again, and you've talked about it in multiple books. And, you know, we have seen it in our population as well. And for the audience, I think it's important for them to know how you define an optimal diet. So I want you to talk about the optimal diet for disease reversal. Yeah. So to me, I just, I have no doubt at all that the optimal diet for disease reversal is a carefully designed whole food plant-based diet. A plant-based diets work, it's just... Uh, common sense. They work because they maximize the components that are associated with disease risk reduction, and they minimize the components that are associated with an increased risk of disease. So, you know, when you think about it, whole plant foods are rich in fiber. They're rich in phytochemicals. They're, they're rich in the enzymes that help convert the phytochemicals into their active forms. They're rich in antioxidants and prebiotics and plant sterols and stanols and micronutrients. And they are the most healthful sources of macronutrients as well. You know, they tend to be low in, the, in things that are associated with, with increased disease like saturated fat and trans fatty acids and refined carbohydrates and animal protein and new 5GC and endotoxins and, and environmental contaminants that move up the food chain and all of those things. And so essentially what plant-based diets do is they put a lid on the key drivers of chronic disease. When we think about, you know, overweight and obesity and inflammation and oxidative stress and dysbiosis or an unhealthy gut microflora and lipotoxicity and glycotoxicity and all of these things that drive uh, disease, we're essentially putting a lid on them with plant-based diets. And to me, the optimal diet for disease reversal is, is one that's designed to support a healthy body weight, which is for most people means weight loss. So it needs to be a diet that fills people up with fewer calories. And what's interesting is if you look at that latest study, the 2021 study from Kevin Hall, the metabolic ward trial, they compared a ketogenic diet with a vegan diet uh, that was fairly low in fat. And what they found is that the vegan diet uh, I think people were eating 600 and some odd calories, few, fewer calories, and feeling just as satisfied as the people on the keto diet. They lost weight. They they lost considerably more fat. What was it, 51 grams a day mm -hmm. versus 16 yeah. or something in right. the 
in the, the keto diet, it was really quite a remarkable difference. And, and so, you know, these are the kinds of diets. And so if I were designing a diet for, you know, really optimal disease reversal, um, I would look at every, you know, every food group. So the, the, the grains that people are consuming, I would want them to be as unprocessed as possible. So it would be, you know, um, uh, Camut berries instead of, you know, a, a flaked Camut cereal, for example, it would be, you know, less processed, higher fiber foods as, as much as possible. And a lot of greens and a lot of colorful vegetables. You want to maximize all of those protective components. And I think I myself eat a diet that is very, very close to that. And I may allow myself more treats than what somebody who's trying to reverse a chronic disease should be allowing themselves during that reversal process. But, you know, my, my breakfast will be these intact grains with lots of berries and all the colors. And I, even when I cook my Kamut berries and unhulled bar or hulled barley, I, I add in some lentils just to, you know, add in some of the nutrients that the legumes would provide. And that goes into my breakfast bowl. And I'm always thinking about how I can improve. And I'm, I make sure that it's always sprinkled on top or that the hemp seeds and the chia seeds and the flax seeds and a little bit of Brazil nuts and some walnuts. And, you know, I just try to get everything that I can in. And my lunch is always a big giant salad. And, and, but I always make sure it's got a great source of, you know, something that'll fill me up like a, a sweet potato or, or some sort of quinoa, you know, and I'll often pick black or red to get in more phytochemicals. And, and then it's got some sort of protein. It could be, you know, um, some sort of bean or edamame or whatever. And then I try to get every color of the rainbow in. So I want something purple, something red, something orange, something yellow. And, you know, it's fun for me. It, it's like a, a, a challenge. And my dressings are always made from whole food. So it's tahini and lemons and garlic and all of those yummy things. Yes. And so that that's the way that I eat. And I absolutely love those meals. I love the greens. I When I go away from home, the thing I crave the most is my intact grains and my greens. And because they're not always that easy to get when you're away from home. And so I think the, the, the thing that I think that is so true is I know many people when they first make the shift, they think that the food doesn't taste as good because it doesn't have as much fat and sugar and so on and so on. But what happens is your palate adjusts. Yeah. And for me, when I eat something that's, you know, that's got a lot of grease or a lot of sweetness, a sweetener added, I can't stand the taste of it. It, it is just gross to me. But when I taste a, a fresh, juicy peach, it's like I'm in heaven. Yes. I so appreciate those flavors. And that happens if you allow your palate to adjust. And it doesn't take that long for your palate to adjust to the, the taste of real food. I, I fully yeah. agree. I mean, I think if people realize that the foods that we're eating, the foods that we've been indoctrinated or have, you know, because it's, it is a marketing tool, you know, fat, sugar, these are addictive foods. Mm -hmm. These are poisons. 
And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, this, these are poisons that have killed, I mean, as bad as cigarettes. I mean, the number, the cardiovascular disease problem that we have, the vascular disease, the strokes we have is because of the food. Yeah. And there are poisons. Knowing that these poisons, if we, we give ourselves a chance to adapt our taste, it's complete reversal of everything, mm -hmm. all the damage, moment by moment. Every food that we eat, every every meal that we eat can be poison or best form of medicine. So mm -hmm. we we definitely uh, we we try to push that idea that okay, yeah, we don't we don't lie about it. That when you're changing your diet, if you're used to burgers and fries, initially when you change your diet, you're going to feel as if you're losing taste. Mm -hmm. There's no question of that. But taste is not taste. It's habit. It's culture. It's environment. It's all history, stories, and you will adapt from that poison to regular food. And I, I and I truly truly think that th that's where cooking comes in very handy and an important aspect of living a healthy life. Um, I did an interview just a couple of days ago, yeah. and I said cooking saves lives. And the reporter goes, "Can you say that again?" I said, "Cooking saves lives." If you know how to cook a few basic things that you can eat on a regular basis, you can truly change your biochemistry, not, not just, you know, prevent diseases, but you can change the infrastructure of your body and especially of your brain to become resilient. So, you know, for people who are used to too much fat and too much sugar and too much salt, by adding the key ingredients, you can make an amazing recipe that will stop you from resorting to those bad foods and unhealthy ones. Yes. And I think the the key too is that, and what many people don't realize is that once your palate has changed, you actually don't enjoy your food any less no. than you did previously. I think you actually enjoy it more. Yeah. Uh, you appreciate the, the flavors that naturally come in all of these when you're using fresh foods, fresh herbs, fresh garlic, all of these wonderful treats. Yesterday, I cooked up some oyster mushrooms that were just right, you know, fresh picked from the farmer's market. And what a treat. And you just, I don't know, there's just a, an appreciation for the real flavors of food that runs way deeper than any appreciation I ever had of for processed foods. Mm -hmm. So I think you'll, in the end, you'll enjoy your food even more. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, there's, I think, two variables to that enjoyment. One is, you know, the enjoyment centers of the brain, be it dopamine or endorphins, but there's a plateau, there's a peak phenomenon that has to happen, you know, with food A or food B. It's going to take a while because as you're adjusting, you're going to feel some dissonance, some discomfort, but the brain has to find that dopamine release. So now you're hungry, you're hungry. And then ultimately, oh, wait a second. This peach tastes as good as that candy. Oh, okay. So that dopamine starts peaking. And then after a while, that peach actually tastes better. So that dopamine starts peaking. But there's another element on top of that. The fact that you you know there's a cognitive component, there's a thinking component, that I'm doing something that's healthy. There's something that's actually saving my life. So over time, I think the pleasure component is significantly more because of those two factors. I, I just tell people, be patient, learn how to cook, or as Aisha says, cooking saves lives. And literally, you'll see that your taste will change. When we have a, by accident, we have like a fatty food that has a little bit more saturated fat or 
I actually feel I can't sleep that night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially products that have coconut oil in them. You know, maybe a cookie or a baked good that has some coconut oil. We can't sleep at night. We have this heartburn, this discomfort. Yeah. And that's because we eat We've so adapted. clean that our body reacts to it immediately. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'm I'll... The, the, the very same way. I can't digest it. I just, yeah, it just feels so uncomfortable in yeah. my stomach. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you talk to you know individuals who are interested to go towards this this direction? You know, Dean and I work in the community clinic, and I've said this before, but we have we have patients who have never had an opportunity to go to a farmer's market, and they're adult patients. We've had patients who don't really know what lentils are. You know, they know what beans are because they've probably seen it in a quesadilla or in a burrito in a you know fast food restaurant, but for people who don't really have access to good food and they are suffering from all these kinds of diseases, what is your approach? What is the first step? You know, that's really the case uh, in the Marshall Islands. So the food access is very, very limited. They have very little access to fresh produce. And so, you know, when we were working with the people from the Marshall Islands who have very little money, they earn maybe two or three dollars an hour if they work at all. And an apple costs three dollars a pound. So it's just really, really hard. So the things that we would talk to them about are and and, and I think not just talking to them about, about, but actually bringing them to the grocery store that is a grocery store that is accessible to all of them and and actually doing a tour and then cooking with them yeah. uh, is really important and so for example the foods that are very inexpensive that they could afford are the legumes are some of the whole grains and then what we did so we would teach them how to prepare those things they were all they were happy to prepare muesli um, muesli is like a soaked oat kind of cereal. And they, that worked really well for them because it's it's easy and, and anybody can do it. The beans, they caught on to, they'd never tasted beans before ever uh, or lentils. They didn't, you know, but they loved them. I can remember in a school preparing the beans uh, with onions and garlic and, and one lady, a teacher said to us, I like this better than ice cream. And, <laughs> and it was amazing. This is so delicious. I like it. And so I thought to myself, you know, when you introduce it in a way that you're, they're cooking with you, they're preparing it, you're talking about why it's a value. Uh, it worked so well. Now for the produce, that's a whole other story. Yeah. So what we did for the produce, uh, because of their very limited access, is we we helped people whatever their circumstances to learn to grow something mm. and and in the marshall islands they were at a bit of an advantage because they have sunshine year round yeah. <laughs> and so even though they don't have good soil we brought in massive numbers of earth boxes uh soil and seeds and people would be growing uh, greens uh, very, very easily. And so to empower people 
to, to, you know, grow the produce themselves as much as was humanly possible. And then we teach them also about some of the less expensive. So onions and cabbage and carrots and some of those kinds of foods, some of the squashes um, were pretty cheap. So those kinds of foods were more accessible. And so to learn to use the foods that are more affordable and also a little less perishable as well uh, worked really well and so those were our strategies there and so I think for every individual it's a little bit different and and so one of the things that we did was to try to really connect with the individual we would go to their homes we would look at what they had uh, in terms of potential for growing food we would see what they had in their kitchen Could we help them with, you know, a chef's knife and a cutting board, for example? And so those were things that that were really valuable to them. And so those little practical things that could make such a big difference. Right. As one of our members actually said that um, almost everybody, almost everyone, I'll say almost because there are some people, almost everybody knows what they need to eat for their health. Um, It's the community support and the directions and the coaching that makes a huge difference, you know, holding people's hands and showing them that they can do it is incredibly important. Absolutely. All right. So that's fascinating. So there's a lot of noise in the nutrition world, Brenda, and, you know, you being one of the leaders in this whole movement, you're, I'm sure you're, uh, you're aware of them and you, you get subjected to them. The good thing is, you know, because of your training and because of your fantastic personality, you have a very circumspect and a broad uh, view. There are, there are people who are always trying to um, highlight some of the potential deficiencies of uh, a plant-based diet. And that gets exaggerated in the media. You know, as you as you may recall, uh, you know, the Oxford uh, study published an entire paper saying that, you know, vegetarians are more depressed or, for example, that they have calcium deficiency and so on and so forth. So these, these fake deficiencies that never existed suddenly come to the front. And it, it, it's pretty scary uh, because, you know, some of these papers and some of these statements are backed by people who want to highlight their preferences. And there's some bias into it as well. I guess my question here is, from your experience, what are some of the um, nutrients that tend to fall short when eating a plant-based diet? And because you, when, when we asked you, the first statement was a carefully planned plant-based diet is important. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, first of all, I I think it's worth stating that, that, you know, the Adventist Health Study 2 and Epic Oxford have shown us that that vegetarians and particularly vegans have less heart disease. They have less cancer. They have less type 2 diabetes and a lot less, uh, you know, 62% among vegans in in in, uh, the Adventist Health Study 2. You know, it goes on and on. They have they have less diverticular disease. They have less kidney disease. You know, there, there are just so many advantages to this way of eating in terms of disease risk reduction. Uh, and, and so it, it's true that in some studies we've seen higher risk of uh, bone fractures. And the reason is, or, or lower bone uh, mineral density, and the reason is generally that people eating plant-based have a leaner uh, bodies. 
And so they have less bone mass. And so it, it, I think that at least explains a, a, a good chunk of it. But there are some populations eating plant-based who don't have access to as many, uh, you know, of these fortified non-dairy milks and, and, and they're not as, as aware of, of, you know, vitamin B12 or vitamin D or, or these kinds of nutrients. And so sometimes we can see some shortfalls, but the, the big thing to remember is overall, uh, we have significantly reduced risk of chronic disease. And these potential nutrition shortfalls do not need to exist if we plan the diet reasonably. So in the Adventist Health Study too, the only uh, nutrients that that we noticed were falling short were were, uh, vitamin D for both plant-based people and omnivores. I mean, there just weren't any huge differences between people eating a a good balanced plant-based diet and and health-conscious people eating a reasonably well-planned omnivorous diet in terms of nutritional deficiencies. But generally the nutrients that you you may not get enough of, even if you do eat, you know, all of the foods within a sort of plant-based food guide, the legumes and the grains and the fruits and the vegetables and the nuts and seeds, you you don't have necessarily a source of B12 there. Mm. So you want to be taking a B12 supplement or eating B12 fortified foods or a combination of those two. Right. Vitamin D can be an issue because a lot of people um, aren't getting enough sun exposure. And especially I live in Canada, there's six or seven months of the year where I can't make enough vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So I may need a supplement. And generally, even though we add vitamin D to some of these non-dairy milks and a few, you know, margarines and things like that, generally we won't get enough from food to meet our requirements. And so those are a couple of nutrients that may potentially fall short. Vitamin D may potentially fall short for everyone. So it's not just people eating a plant-based diet. And in fact, B12, we can say the same in some some regards, because you can't rely on animal products for B12 for anyone over 50, for example, because in in animal products, the B12 is bound to, um, you know, it's bound to protein and you have to be able to cleave the B12 off the protein to be able to absorb it. And and for probably up to 30% of people over 50, they don't have enough stomach acid or the enzymes necessary to do that job. So, so it's an issue for omnivores as well. We need to be conscious of iodine, especially the real purists, because iodine is the nutrient that is the number one cause of, of preventable brain impairment globally. And, and so it, we've globally added it to salt uh, to help prevent that very, very serious nutritional deficiency. And and a lot of people who are eating plant-based aren't eating iodized salt. And so they've removed that source. Um, The other sources are the fish and dairy products and, you know, and eggs. And so you've eliminated those as well as a a vegan or a hundred percent plant-based person. The other big source is seaweed. And a lot of people in North America and in a lot of countries, seaweed isn't a big part of our diet. It is in Japan, but it's not everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, and so then we need to be a little more conscious about where our iodine is coming from. Uh, And, and, and then other nutrients that, that can fall short 
you know, it, you can fall short in calcium and um, iron and zinc on occasion, depending on your diet, uh, long chain omega threes mm -hmm. could, could fall short for, for, for people that don't convert very well or don't get enough alpha linolenic acid. And so we may want to include, you know, a, an EPA DHA uh, supplement uh, and, and, you know, things like, um, uh, iron and zinc, well, it, you know, the big source is legumes. So if you're uh, eating a diet that's a processed um, plant-based diet and a lot of refined grains, uh, you may not be getting enough of those nutrients. Uh, if you're just gradually switching and you're still consuming a lot of dairy, dairy is not a good source of iron and it can inhibit the absorption mm -hmm. of iron. So there are all of these little, little things, but generally, if you're putting together a diet that includes a variety of plant foods, you're, you know, you don't have to worry a lot about, about those minerals. Calcium, I think is, is a nutrient that you can absolutely can get plenty of in a plant-based diet. Uh, you know, if you eat a, a variety of, you know, low oxalate greens and almonds and sesame seeds and beans and soy products like tofu and all of these things are part of your diet, you're going to be doing pretty well. If you add even one or, you know, more cups of calcium fortified non-dairy beverages, well, you're over the thousand milligrams. And, and so it's a, you know, pretty easily done. Yeah. Uh, so generally we get plenty of nutrients on varied plant-based diets with the exception possibly of vitamin B12 and vitamin D. And, you know, when I say that a lot of people will say, well, that just proves, you know, the, the, the diet isn't, isn't adequate, but, but think about this. We have for many years been adding nutrients to omnivorous diets to make them adequate. Yes. So, you know, we, we, we've added iodine to salt. We've added vitamin D to cow's milk. We, we've added folic acid uh, because we don't need enough greens to, to grains. We've added iron to grains. We, you know, we've been doing that for years. So, so that B12 needs to be added. Well, it needs to be added for older omnivores as well. Um, we have to think about the bigger picture. Picture. And, and when it comes to the bigger picture, we, we want to be providing a diet that can feed the world and preserve the planet and, and causes the least amount of harm to other creatures that we share the planet with as possible. And, and so that diet is universally accepted, I think, to be a plant-based diet. And if we have to add vitamin B12 to that diet, it's not a big deal. It's a cheap nutrient and it's easy to do. So we just need to get on with it. Yeah, no, no. I love it. There, there seems to be a magical thinking process. I mean, uh, when I went to um, my background, public health background, Afghanistan and, and different countries around the world, that when we first landed in Afghanistan in 2001, I was at NIH and then I was asked to come in, to Afghanistan and you know what's going on now there, all that uh, 20 years of work and, and, and around women's empowerment and all of that down the drain. But um, nonetheless, uh, what we saw was 15% of the kids had iodine deficiency and therefore goiter and thyroid deficiency and with the cognitive stuff. So I want people to realize that it's, there's almost like a magical thinking like, Oh, the natural world is if you're just as natural as possible without planning, getting rid of everything, you're going to be fine. You're not. People didn't live past 30, you know, for thousands of years. And we want to cheat the system, but in a, as unintrusive, as clean, as mindful as possible. And that's where the planned plant-based diet comes in. 
it, you have to do it planned anyway, whatever you eat. But a plant-based diet takes out all the anti-inflammatory, uh, sorry, the inflammatory foods, the oxidative damage, the you know glucose dysregulation, the dysbiosis. So all the negatives are taken out. And then if you're deficient, you are going to be deficient anyway, the other way around. You just are mindful of what to eat more of to make sure that you get the fortified vitamin D, iodine, and all of that stuff. That's a that's a given. The you know throughout the world, whatever diet. And that mentality is so critical to spread throughout because we keep getting caught in the world's words like organic and natural and this and that saying, forget about all that. As clean a food as possible, and but a little bit of planning around things that you would have been deficient anyway. Yeah. Uh, lovely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I just I you know, I, I just have to say that I I am in mourning uh, for what has been lost in Afghanistan, and I can't even imagine how much this must be devastating to you and your family, and I'm so sorry for that. And I think that every human being needs to do whatever they can to support the people of Afghanistan who need to get out. Whatever we can do, we need to do. Our politicians need to do. As individuals, whatever we can you know, contribute, it is uh, beyond uh, beyond devastating, and I'm so sorry for. I know that the work that you put in will always be of value. The people that get out will continue to benefit from what you did there, and um, my my heart just goes out to you and to all of the people uh, there as well. We need to be more knowledgeable about what's going on. I love you, Brenda. Thank yeah, you so much yeah. for saying that. It really means a lot. I guess our, our love for public health and community started mm-hmm. with our experience there in yeah. the orphanages, in the refugee camps, um, seeing the effect of um, a true public health policy and that translating into a shift in human policy and in, in, in how people treated each other. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for saying that. Just as a last thing, I mean, um, I want people to realize that this is not just a policy change. It's uh, you can't give 16, actually 18 million women hope, knowledge, empowerment, all of that, I mean, at the level that you can't even imagine, one of the, we, I was in charge of all the healthcare system. We rec- and I created, I call it social jujitsu without people knowing it around women's empowerment. And you saw the complete shift in mentality. And then you say, oh, now you go back to the box. Oh, that's death. That's worse than death. So you have 16 million people are going to go under Taliban, under these crazy fanatics. They're dead. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not hyperbolic. They're, they're, we've just killed 16 million people overnight with, with a bad policy. We'll leave that aside for now. This is about the reason we love you is because, again, I'm going to come back to that. I want the audience to realize there's a difference between the social media person that just posts in the social media and a person that's been to Marshall Island has seen those amazing people and has connected to them and recognizes the human component, recognizes the challenges of that person that can't make the change recognizes that you have to adapt the diet to the person that's a completely different level public health person than somebody who's on social media that's just read a paper and made a beautiful little blog or little pictures of you know this and that so we we love you we respect you we we you're our friend our partner in this battle to change the world for the better 
forever. You're stuck with us. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that because I, I can't tell you how much I um, how much love and respect I have for you. And, and I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing and for the work that you've done and will continue to do. And um, I, I just pray that, um, that, that something will change uh, in Afghanistan for, for the women who, like you say, are, are literally killed in their spirits and, mm-hmm. and otherwise. And uh, we, as, as human beings, need to do everything we can to, to change that. We definitely do. We learn so much, you know, every time, every time we're with you, it's, it's, well, we love you, but you're, you're just a wealth of knowledge. And I know that everybody here uh, listening to you are also enjoying it and they absolutely love you. We thank you so much for spending so much time with us yeah. talking about something that we're all passionate about, which is food and health, not just human health, but the health of this planet as well. We're grateful for everything you've done and you are doing. Uh, You're an inspiration for all of us. Well, thank you so much. And you're a a constant inspiration to me as well. And I love you guys both dearly. And I really hope that that we'll be seeing one another again soon. And thank you to all the people that are listening today. I hope you got something of value and I I hope that we'll meet someday as well. So thank you so much. It was a privilege to be with you. Thank Thank you, Brenda. Brenda. Thank you so much, uh, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you soon. 